0: Hello and welcome to The Analytic Christian, a podcast exploring topics in Christian philosophy and theology. The resurrection of Jesus tends to be at the center of the conversation among Christian scholars, and rightly so, but today, Cruz Davis draws our attention to an important event that comes a bit later, 40 days later to be exact, namely, the ascension of Jesus. How are we to make sense of such an event, especially given the physical nature of Christ's body? In this interview, Davis walks us through the question with an exploratory approach. First, drawing out the difficulties and then discussing some responses, including one that he thinks is most plausible. It's a fascinating discussion, and I think you're going to enjoy it quite a bit. Let's take a listen to what he has to say.
1: Tonight, we're going to be talking about the metaphysics of the ascension of Jesus. And that may sound like, you know, a a cool topic to you, or it may sound like, oh, is this going to be really complex? I think. Whatever level you're at, we're going to try and get you interested in this. This is a very interesting topic. And my guest is Cruz Davis. He is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. So welcome.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: I'm so excited to meet you. You are friends with Justin Mooney, right?
2: That is correct. Yeah, yeah.
1: You Uh, both go to the same university, and Justin just finished his PhD. Where are you at in the process?
2: I'm just a year behind Justin, uh, so I'll either finish up uh, this upcoming year or the year after.
1: Okay, cool. So I guess before we get into the paper that we're discussing, I'll go ahead and mention it now. Uh, So this paper is not published yet, right? It's just forthcoming?
2: Uh, neither. I, I, am I'm, I'm waiting to hear back on.
1: You're uh, waiting to hear back. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I got you. So it's on the metaphysics of the Ascension. I'm not sure what, the, I guess that's Latin at the top. Yeah. Ubi Est
2: Corpus Christi means where is the body of Christ?
1: Where is the body of Christ? Oh, yeah. you know, I would have titled the video that if I knew what Ubi Est <laughs> Corpus Christi meant. Yeah. Um, so how did you get interested in the topic of the Ascension?
2: Right. So, um, when I was an undergrad, I used to lead this, uh, interfaith, uh, group that had people from different religions, uh, atheists, theists, you know, and so on. And they'd come together and, uh, we'd discuss, uh, various bits of Christian theology and try to get to know, uh, about, uh, different theological or philosophical positions that, um, people in the other groups had. And, uh, one of the things that I used to do in the fall was I'd lead, um, the discussions on Christian theology, and we'd go through the Nicene Creed. And we basically go through line by line, and I talk a little bit about the historical and theological backgrounds, but then I bring up various phys- philosophical puzzles um, having to do with each of the uh, theological commitments. And then uh, I stumbled across, uh, you know, and he ascended into heaven, right? I'm thinking to myself, you know i haven't seen anything on this before and uh the more i think about it the the weirder it just seems it's hard to put a finger on what exactly is weird about it uh but i mean there's a very clear and straightforward question which is where did his body go uh and so i went and dug around through out a, a bunch of places where i I thought i'd be able to find something saying stuff about uh philosophical issues related to the ascension and i was pretty much just not able to find anything um there's like a couple of paragraphs in a book by hud hudson uh swinburne says something that's like maybe a paragraph long and then uh william lynn craig had a couple of things on his uh um website about this that were just due to various questions that people asked what I did find, actually, though, which I, I thought was kind of funny, is there is some extensive work on the Assumption of Mary um, that uh, Catholic philosophers have gotten into. Uh, in particular, John Haldane has an entire paper um, on how to understand the Assumption of Mary and how to make sense out of it. Um, but yeah, since uh, there's nothing there, I figured I wanted to, you know, try to figure out what's puzzling about it and what the uh, what we should say about Uh, The Ascension, if anything at all, should we leave it open Uh, or should we take some various particular positions and um, ended up thinking that uh, the kind of position that we're going to have to end up with is uh, relatively surprising, but something that uh, can be well-motivated.
1: Yeah, your solution is going to be really intriguing to the viewers, I'm sure. OK, just to give the viewer a sense of the overview of this interview, here's how it's going to work. It's it's broken into three parts. So in part one, we're going to lay out the problem of the ascension. Mm-hmm. In part two, we're going to look at um, I'm sorry, in part one, we're laying out just what the doctrine of the ascension is. In part two, we're looking at the problem that it presents, like what's the problem facing it? And then in part three, we're looking at the. Um, responses to the problem. So that's how this interview's b- broken up. So let's start with the doctrine itself. What, what exactly are you um, talking about when you talk about the doctrine of the ascension?
2: Yeah. So uh, after Christ was resurrected from the dead, he went and ministered to people for uh, uh, 40 days and then um, was taken up before the disciples uh, bodily into heaven so we have this incorruptible uh resurrection body that is then assumed uh into the divine realm whatever that means um things like this are talked about elsewhere i mean so there's the tradition of enoch being uh translated into heaven same thing with elijah uh the thing that i think is distinctive about uh the case with uh, crisis, it's very clear that when this transition happens, it seems like you can't get rid of the bodily aspect of it. Um, the change from being within creation to uh, heaven um, has to be, or at least at face value, has to be consistent with Christ still having a body.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now what then is the problem you said, you know, we, I think a lot, many people might think, yeah, there's something, there's something strange about this, how this works, but, uh, what's the problem specifically? Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, so as I said earlier, the, uh, um, thing that, uh, intuitively sticks out is like, okay, so where, where did he go? Right. Um, it's not like, uh, eventually the Hubble Telescope's going to find Jesus's body floating around uh, some planet or asteroid or something like that. Or there's going to be, you know, basically like how they have Asgard depicted in Marvel, just some sort (laughs) of like city in the clouds uh, that's floating in the midst of space. And then, you know, once Hubble gets far enough out there, it's going to see, Oh, that's where Christ's hanging out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There's something that seems, uh, uh, profane about that kind of an idea uh, some people have floated things like that like I think uh, Wayne Grudem says something along these lines hmm. um, but uh, yeah like it's, it's kind of like you've got this rocket ship Jesus idea he shoots off um, so I one of the things I wanted to do was try to figure out how exactly to say why you might find something like this profane or why you might find it puzzling um, that doesn't allow for such a like simple, straightforward solution like that. And I think that there's three claims um that we're committed to that uh when held together, it looks like they lead to a contradiction. So um Here are the three claims. The first is just the doctrine of the ascension, which we'll call bodily ascension. It says Christ has a physical body, and it's entirely within heaven, right? Um, So he's physical, and uh, that physical body is in heaven, right? Uh, The second claim that's uh, something that I take to be intuitive is that uh, heaven isn't something that's located within space or time um or just like within your standard three-dimensional space that uh, we're familiar with um it's the realm of spirits it's you know uh god's special abode uh things like that as i said there seems to be something about like this idea that eventually we'll bump into heaven via uh space exploration that seems weird to weird to me and not like the kind of thing that you'd expect want to accept as a a traditional Christian. Um, And then the last claim uh, is materiality. And this is a condition on what it is for something to be material that is generally well accepted, which is necessarily anything with a physical body, anything that's a material object, has a location within space. Uh, Material objects, physical bodies, I'm treating that roughly as the same sort of thing. they're the kinds of things that we see that have spatial dimensions um, and are either defined in terms of having spatial dimension, or at least typically have been, or having just some sort of location within space.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so then from these three, you you argue in the paper, this forms an inconsistent set.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. So elaborate, How? What? How, how do we get a contradiction out of these three?
2: yeah so uh christ is so could break up bodily ascension right christ is entirely in heaven so that means that um he has to be um in some sense located there right uh but if uh heaven isn't a spatial location it can't be the case that this uh the place where christ's body is is spatial and uh by any way shape or form uh however Bodily Ascension also tells us that uh, Christ has a physical body. His body is a material object. So by materiality, it has to be the case that his body has a spatial location. Um, And then you can see very quickly that once we accept these three claims together, it looks like we're going to be committed to the contradiction that Christ is both spatially located and not spatially located.
1: Yeah. So by one and two christ has a spatial location but by one in three christ does not have a spatial location
2: yeah that's correct yeah
1: okay now that's the problem in a nutshell you get this contradiction and the thing is all three of these claims at least you know they seem like they're pretty plausible on the on the face of it uh you look at that and you're like yeah i i can see all three of those those seem plausible so what um what we're going to do for the remainder of the interview is look at potential solutions to this problem. So why don't we turn to that now? Yeah, let me, um, let me say uh,
2: something uh, real quick about methodology here. Cause I think that, as you said, each of the claims, at least if you're a Christian, you know, uh, you're going to say that each of them is plausible, right? Um, we're committed to one. Uh, it looks like by just a straightforward reading of the scripture, the creeds commit us to it. Uh, we're committed to two just based upon intuitive reflection about what heaven would have to be like and we're committed to three based on some pretty straightforward non-revisionary claims about the metaphysics of physical or material objects so in resolving issues like this you're going to want it to be the case that we don't do it in an ad hoc way that results in some sort of unnecessary uh, philosophical revisionist revisionism, or um, leads us into theological heterodoxy. And so that's going to be the rough constraints we're going to want to work with. Um, The way that I approached the issue was I took it to be the case that it's fine to give something that's metaphysically revisionary just so long as it's independently motivated from the theological claims. um, And that, uh, we should ground what's heterodox versus not heterodox based upon um, some pretty uh, well-established claims uh, that take place in Christian soteriology, which is the you know doctrine of salvation.
1: Yeah, that was helpful to clarify that. Okay, let's start talking about solutions. So in the paper, you discuss four types of solutions. And in the end, you only opt for one of them. You, you think one of them is has the best chance of, of resolving this issue. But we're going to discuss all four. So maybe if you want, just like give a broad picture of like the four types of responses, and then we'll get into each one in particular. Yeah.
2: So um, whenever you're faced with a contradiction, you can either... Uh, um, find some way to deny plausibly one of the uh, claims that lead you to that, Um, or you could try to find a way to um, reread the premises uh, that lead to the contradiction in such a way that they end up being compatible with one another. Out of the four solutions, uh, uh, we have three that deny each of the claims uh some some bit of bodily ascension something about the location of heaven so they deny either one or two um or they deny that material bodies need to be uh located uh by necessity um a different way of going about it is to reread what the claims mean um, in such a way so that uh they end up all being compatible and um this is what uh what I'm calling ubiquitism. It's a claim that goes back to Luther ends up doing where he understands um, what it is to be located in heaven in a way that's compatible with also having a spatial location as well.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. So let's start with what you call anti-corporealism. So, this is going to deny the bodily ascension, uh, specifically the way that claim is stated. Christ has a physical body and it's entirely in heaven. They're going to deny, uh, this claim. So yeah, elaborate on this. What, what goes on in this
2: response? So, um, uh, what they do is they deny the bodily part of, um, uh, the bodily ascension. So Christ descended into heaven. They don't deny that, but they don't think that you need to take on the extra bit that requires you to say that He has a physical body. Um, now, there's four different versions of this that I consider, and I think, like, given what I said about the methodology, the first one, which I have a, a little line through, um, gives a really clear and straightforward uh, way of seeing how. Um, we want to stay within certain theological commitments. Uh, So the first claim is called uh, anti-incarnationalism, or at least that's what I'm calling it. And uh, it's an idea that I, I, you know, you can kind of see it floated in um, what Swinburne has to say. He, He offers... A couple of different ways of understanding the ascension but one of the things that he says is like oh or we could just understand it to be the case that for a period of time um when christ descends he just goes back to being the second person of the trinity um and uh it, it, there's i think there's reason for why he does this he's got a, a christology where um Christ is a human body plus the second person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity just plays the role of the soul for Christ. Um, At least that's what I understand. Uh, But I think that this really straightforwardly ends up running into issues with our soteriology. Um, It undercuts the current role that Christ is supposed to be playing as our high priest and intercessor. He doesn't play that role qua divine. He plays that qua human Um, He's supposed to be the representative of humanity via his human nature uh, to the Godhead. And so we lose this important role that Christ is supposed to be playing if we assume that he gives up uh, his human nature completely and just goes back to being entirely divine. Um, So that's why I think we should just like rule that out from the beginning. This is something that I think like even intuitively, most uh, Christians are just gonna think of as something that's theologically repugnant. Um, So instead, uh, there's a few different ways of understanding um, how you can deny one, uh, two of which I found that other people say, uh, and one, I haven't been able to find anybody that says exactly this. And um, the first is naive anti-corporealism, which is the, just that uh, when Christ goes up to heaven, he loses his physical body. He just has a human soul, right? Um, and uh, his nature takes place entirely, his human nature takes place entirely within the human soul. Uh, no physical body to accompany him. Um, nobody that I've been able to find says that, but I think it's important to illustrate different ways that you can develop. An anti view. And the two other ways I'm going to call manifestationalism and non manifestationalism. Um, perhaps I could have named these better, but uh, here's how I understand the views. Manifestationalism is something that gets floated by John Haldane about uh, Mary and Mary's relationship to her body. He thinks it's the case that uh, Mary ceases to have a, phys- a physical location. So, and we're just going to translate all of this. The mary stuff to what we're going to say about christ's body so um haldane would say that christ's body ceases to have a physical location um and so it ceases to have a physical body however it has powers that are manifest that go beyond um normal uh powers of the human spirit or powers of the human soul and these powers are the kinds of powers that are associated with having a physical body Um, the ability to manifest in space or to uh, move objects around in a particular way, you might think that these are all uh, uh, ways that one can manifest uh, themselves in a bodily way without having a body. Uh, The non-manifestationalist understanding is that uh, Christ – isn't divided his human nature isn't divided up necessarily into body and soul rather there's ways in which his human nature can become manifest um and this is the view that it seems like william Lane craig supports uh you when christ's body or sorry when christ's human nature is within space-time it manifests itself bodily um but when you take that nature out of space-time, it no longer does that. So it's not like there's a change in the nature per se. Rather, it's a change in the conditions uh, through which that nature becomes manifest. Um, and uh, what the way that he likes to cash it out is that there isn't an intrinsic change in Christ's human nature. Um, uh, rather, it's just all due to different extrinsic features. I mean, we can talk about this later. I think that that's a really bad way of cashing out or thinking about things. But uh, there's all sorts of intrinsic changes going on when, you know, uh, my spatial relations between my parts are intrinsic. But uh, yeah, that's the kind of view that William Lane Craig supports.
1: Why don't we cash it out now? Because what I'd like to do for each one of these responses is as we go through it, you offer a, you know, summarize the view and then critique it. So what's your critique, I guess, of manifestationism and, and also your critique of non-manifestationism.
2: Yeah. So the non-manifestationism, so there's the thing that I said about uh, intrinsic properties. Um, I think that you don't, you can't, uh, part of the intrinsic features of me uh, include ways that uh, um, my body relates to itself. Right. Um. But I think that you can actually just offer one big argument against this entire anti-corporealist picture. Uh, And that's what I I think is probably the best way to to go. Um, Just so I don't like end up like strapping people like Craig with uh, things that he doesn't actually think. Um, And really what I think the problem is, is that they face uh, they face a dilemma. Actually, sorry, let me take a quick step back. First of all, anti-corporealism is denied just throughout church history by the fathers. So you've got passages from Gregory Nazianzus and uh, John of Damascus, where they very clearly say, no, it's bodily at the right hand of God. And then they go and explain what that means uh, in a way that's supposed to get around um, or explain how Christ could be bodily at the right hand of God. Um, but yeah, let's get back to that... Uh, uh dilemma so let's think about uh, what different views of the human nature uh can be so um on the one end you could be some type of materialist uh either a reductive materialist or a non-reductive one like you're a functionalist or something like that and so the human nature um is based entirely uh, in um, our physical bodies Uh, Or you could be a dualist of some sort and say that uh, our nature is boiled down to us having some sort of physical and non-physical aspect. Those are the two big pictures that are on the board. Um, Now, there's a way to extend this dilemma beyond this, but I think that, you know, pretty much everybody's going to fall on one side or the other. Uh, So anticorporealism ends up running into some sort of theologically problematic claims if you take either uh way of view, viewing human nature so on the one end you could say that human nature is entirely based on our physical aspect um, and be a materialist but if you're an anti-corporealist then you're going to have to say that that aspect's been given up right um, and it follows from that that if you're Uh, an anticorporealist and a materialist, you're going to have to say that Christ gave up his uh, human nature. But then that just makes all these other three versions of anticorporealism bottom out in anti-incarnationalism, which we've already seen is a pretty bad thing to accept. This is not something that you want to take on. Um, On the other hand, say that we're dualists about human nature so we think that we're like based on a body and a soul or you know uh we have both fundamental mental and physical properties right um but if you're an anti-corporealist then you're going to want to say that christ's uh non-material aspect his soul uh has been separated from uh, and now exists apart from his material aspect uh his body but Traditionally, the uh, thought is, is that whenever your body and soul are apart, you're dead, right? So uh, if you're an anti corporealist and um, a dualist, it looks like you're committed to the claim that Christ is dead. Now, if that isn't uh, <laughs> a heterodox claim, I don't know what is. Christ is the defeater of death, he's the source of life. It, we, we require him. Uh, to be continually living because he's you know um, he's our living Savior we get life through participating uh, in his resurrection and um, so I think that either way you're gonna end up saying something theologically problematic either Christ abandons human nature um, that's bad or Christ is dead that's 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 really bad so uh, that's why I don't think anticorporealism is a viable option.
1: Yeah, and it seems like you would, with respect to the dualist end of that <clears throat> dilemma, it seems like the dualist might have to add a claim to to the view that sounds just kind of ad hoc. So it's like, well, if the body, if the soul is separated from the body, Um, in space time or something like that, then then you're considered dead. But uh, outside of space time, if the soul is does not have a body, then you're not. That's not sufficient to be considered dead, right? uh, You'd probably have to say something like that to try. Yeah, but I mean, think if you if you do say
2: something like that, one of the things that you're going to have to claim is that the souls of the saints aren't going to heaven, right? Because that's where Christ's soul is going, Mm -hmm. right, according to the anti anti-corporealist view. Um, Maybe what they mean to say is something like, uh, it's not like the case that there's ever a dead body, Uh, but then uh, it's unclear what they would say to differentiate their view from somebody who just got, like, evaporated. There was never a dead body in that case so it's like say i've got some sort of like sci-fi stun ray or something like that and it instantly uh disintegrates your body so that there's like you know just like the exact second it hits you you're gone um your soul goes up to heaven or whatever there's no dead body uh that would seem to imply the kind of response that they're making would seem to imply that you would have to still be alive in that case but that's Mm -hmm. clearly false
1: Mm. yeah that's interesting yeah okay so that is anti-corporealism uh and you gave some reasons to think that view is incorrect uh or not very plausible so now let's turn to the second response which is locationalism locationalism denies Two, and I'll put two up on the screen again. So, two says heaven is not a spatial location. So, if you're a locationalist, you're going to deny that, which I guess would be to say heaven is a spatial location.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, the locationalists are going to try to put heaven somewhere in space time or somewhere um, such that it has a location within space. Uh, the ways in which they do that are different. Uh, so, contemporaneous accounts. Of, uh, or contemporaneous locationalists want to say that, cash us out, however, somehow heaven's located now. It's something that's presently located. Uh, whereas futurists want to push um, heaven off into the future and say that it's located somewhere out in the future. Um, there's two different ways that you can do the contemporaneous account. One, one gets you basically to the like uh, rocket ship Jesus picture, that sort of like profane <laughs> sounding thing uh, that I gave at the beginning, which is that somewhere in these three spatial dimensions that we're familiar with, heaven's there. Uh, more sophisticated accounts um, like Hud Hudson's take heaven to be located in uh, a direction that we don't have access to um, beyond uh, the familiar six. Directions that we can move in, Um, so we can go up, down, right, left, front, and back. Um, But there's like, say that there's two other directions because there's a fourth spatial dimension. I think he calls them Ana and Kata, Um, and uh, Heaven is located off some way, either in Ana or Kata, from us. Um, The analogy that you can draw here is imagine um, so. let's see here imagine that like i've got a bunch of yeah so here's here's our little flatlander family that my uh let's see here there we go that my daughter drew they can only move uh front and back up and down right um but they're not going to be like able to sorry i'm i'm Cameras in the wrong way.
1: Yeah, so they're two dimensional. Yeah, they move so they left and move, right, up and down. They
2: can move these ways, but they they're not going to know what's going on out here. Right? Yeah, and so that the idea is that um, that Hudson floats is that heaven is like that to us. We're like flatlanders. We only exist in a three dimensional plane, whereas heavenly beings like angels and whatnot um, exist in they're hyperspatial things. So they exist in four or more spatial dimensions and, uh, they can travel in all these ways that we can't.
1: So, um, you're not Is gonna that still to... considered contemporaneous. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Location. Because those spatial direct, those
2: directions are all space, like directions that you can travel from here, um, at this moment or can travel given maybe having a certain, uh, uh, geometric shape so us being three-dimensional things maybe we can't travel that way at least naturally
1: Mm -hmm. yeah okay so that's that's a version of contemporaneous locationalism what about futurist locationalism
2: yeah so the futurist um uh the easiest way to think about it is um at some point god's going to remake the The earth and the heavens and they're going to be together right and um, what you do is you put uh, heaven as located within kingdom come right so what happens uh, on this account is that when Christ ascends he just kind of skips forward to kingdom come whereas uh, and so we can't get there unless if we were able to like you know uh, do some serious time traveling that it doesn't seem like we'd be able to do.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, now, there is yeah, another... I was going to ask yeah. what your critique of locationalism is, if you're ready to go to the critique.
2: Yeah. So I, I should mention that there's just like there's a hyperspace contemporaneous view, there's a hyperspace futurist view, um, which is that like uh, our time is one amongst many. You basically think of, like, various timelines as related uh, to each other as each moment, past and present, would be now. Uh, And then on that view, you put heaven off into some sort of future timeline, hyper-future timeline or something like that. Uh, I think that there's two different ways. You have to give two different critiques of these uh, different locationalist views. So... um, The contemporaneous accounts face a different problem than futurist accounts do. Uh, The contemporaneous accounts fall prey to what I like to call technological Pelagianism.
1: Yeah, that was such a creative uh, critique, I thought. But it's, yeah, it seemed like a good critique to me. So explain this.
2: Yeah, so what what do Pelagians say? Pelagians say that we can uh, gain entry into heaven via our own moral advancements, right? And that's something that, you know, if you've read any Augustine, you you know that like, this is not sat favorably uh, in the history of Christian theology. There's nothing on our own that we can do by our own accord to morally advance ourselves in such a way that we merit entry into heaven. Um, So the claim that I wanna do is I wanna just generalize a little bit. Because if if it's the case that like continuously morally like advancing ourselves isn't enough to get us through the heavenly gates, um, it most certainly shouldn't be the case that mere technological advancements are enough to get us through the heavenly gates or whatever. And um, let let me make one other qualification th- about the word "can." I understand the "can" in Pelagianism to be a very Uh, Strong can it it's uh, um, You can't in principle So there's no like like real story that you could tell that can map onto any way the world could ever turn out such that moral advancement Would gain you heavenly entry and I want to say the same thing has to be true about technological advancement so it couldn't be the case that uh, say In the future, we develop some sort of machine um, that can rotate us so that we can move in Anankata as opposed to up, down, right, left, front, back uh, that could take us off such that all of a sudden, boom, uh, we're in heaven. However, I think that uh, the contemporaneous accounts of uh, locationalism are going to have to be committed to that being a real possibility and not uh, something that you can't even in principle do.
1: Okay. What about your critique of futurist locationalism?
2: Yeah. So um, what I think goes wrong with futurist accounts, both the more naive one where it's like just future, the kingdom come with our own timeline or within some sort of like hyper future timeline, um, is they end up robbing Christ of certain unique statuses that uh, he has. Um, in particular, think of like the partial greeting that we say every Easter. Um, you, you're gonna you're gonna get certain claims to come out as true that shouldn't be true, right? Um you walk into your Easter service, the pastor gets up and says, Christ is risen, and you yell, Christ is risen indeed, right? Um, so what is it for that claim to be true, according to the futurist? Well, according to the futurist, uh, it looks like what's going to have to be true. Uh, make that claim true is that, um, at some future time, namely in future kingdom come Christ has a resurrection body. Um, but if we generalize out Christ from that and just make it, what is it to say someone is, you know, is risen? Um, well it's for them to have a resurrection body in future kingdom come. Uh, it turns out that that's going to be true of every saint. Um, You know, it's true of Peter to say Peter is risen indeed, (laughs) according to the futurist, because the kinds of ways that they have to spell out um, what it would be true for Christ to be risen makes it also the case that Peter's risen makes it the case that any saint is risen. So it, it robs Christ of this unique status of being uh, true, you know, truly risen now.
1: Yeah. Justin Mooney's watching and he raises another objection to the futurist locationalism, which is actually the same type of objection you raised against contemporaneous locationalism. He says, wouldn't the Pelagian objection also apply to the future account if time travel to the future is at least metaphysically possible?
2: Yes. Yeah. So you can fold that in together. If you think that that kind of time travel is metaphysically possible for us to uh
1: okay so at this point for the viewers we've got i've noticed the numbers are gradually growing so more people are watching and but some people have just come in so up to this point we summarized the problem of the ascension we looked at the first type of response which is anti-corporealism and we laid out some reasons that that response doesn't work and then now we just finished looking at locationalism the second type of response saw some reasons that that response doesn't work. Now, you're going to opt for the third solution, which is non-local corporealism. But before we do that, um, let's talk about ubiquitism. And the reason I do this is, it. the impression I get from reading your paper is that even though very, very little has been written on the problem of the ascension, the other views that we've discussed there are some proponents of those views even if their explanations are very brief and you know they're what they've written on is very brief it seems like other proponents have taken the kinds of solutions you've laid out so far ubiquitism is also a solution that uh has been discussed by martin luther is the under is my understanding so yeah. why don't you lay out ubiquitism yes yeah, so we'll go to your solution which ubiqu- is unique
2: Ubiquitism isn't stated originally as a problem to the problem, uh, sorry, a solution to the problem of the ascension as um, what uh, we've been discussing, but it is something that does work um, as a way of uh, um, trying to resolve the problem and has a long history of theological endorsement, which the other two views do not. so uh, Martin Luther proposed this view uh, when trying to understand how Christ's body and blood can be in the Eucharist. Uh, what he says is that when Christ gains a glorified body, uh, the attributes, the divine and human attributes, start to be such that they cross over. And functionally, Christ's body becomes uh, omnipresent; it's located everywhere. Now, the different ways that there's different ways you can understand this. I mean, there's some sort of like old school uh, theories of location that Martin Luther makes use of, and um, I don't have a back good enough background in that to like really uh, cash out uh, what that is. But um, you could think of him as like multi-located at every single possible region of space. I think that's that's probably the closest that we're going to be able to get. Um, it's not like Christ's body just becomes spread out. It's not like it gets really big. So it gets exactly as big as the universe, right? Um, yeah. And so what this does is um, if uh, if we understand the property of being in heaven, as the property of being glorified and that one of the features of being glorified is just to become located in this way at least for bodies uh then you actually can accept the three claims that i took to be contradictory in the first place um which is you can accept that christ has a body that uh has ascended into heaven right so his physical body just doesn't have the shape that you'd normally think that it would Um, it's in heaven because it's glorified, uh, and heaven is not a spatial location. Rather, being in heaven is to gain a certain type of property, namely being glorified. And it doesn't violate materiality because Christ's body is, uh, within space. Uh, it has a spatial location. In fact, it has way more than one spatial location. It has all of them. Uh. And so you get to accept all three of these, uh, claims together. Um, and you know that, I mean, at first glance, that looks, uh, like a pretty
1: nice solution,
2: but I don't think in the end that it is.
1: Yeah. So go ahead and explain why you think ubiquitism fails.
2: Yeah. So my, uh, in the paper, I don't state my arguments as, uh, strongly as i think that they could be stated but here's here's a couple of worries that you might have um so you might think that uh human bodies are disposed to locate in a particular way uh namely they're disposed to locate at uh human-shaped regions so th- I, I owe justin mooney for this one this was his uh, <laughs> his response to it uh and so It's super duper weird to say uh, that Christ just from now on is located everywhere. He's never, ever again going to be located at a uh, human shaped region, Um, or at least if he is, he's also (laughs) located at all the non-human shaped regions. So uh, him gaining his body, gaining this extra property of being glorified, of being glorified body changes it to be located or disposed to be located in such a way that looks inconsistent with how uh, we should think of human bodies as being disposed to be located in space. How we should think about them as um, tending to manifest themselves when they're located. Uh, So that's, that's one uh, issue with it. The other, uh, another issue is, so here's a, Here's something that seems really intuitive. It seems like there's empty regions of space. Now it's up in the air, depending upon whether you accept some sort of field theory or something like that. But uh, here's a bad result um, for a theological view. If your theological view by fiat, a priori rules out uh, certain physical possibilities. um, In this case, Ubiquitism rules out a priori that at least since the Ascension, um, there could be any empty regions of space. There are no vacuums anywhere. Christ's body fills all of it. Uh, That seems like a really bad result. Uh, And lastly, there's an issue of theological heterodoxy. I state this is uh, something in terms of... uh, um, theological neutrality let's say let's say a solution to a problem is theologically neutral just so long as uh, more traditions can uh, make use of it um most traditions consider ubiquitism to be uh contradictory to the um, uh, Orthodox view of what it is for christ to be incarnate Um, And the reason for this is it has to do with this bleeding over of divine properties into the human nature. And um, if you go back to the creeds, it says that you have this union, um, I forget the exact words, but it's like without uh, merging, without confusion, stuff like that. And uh, ubiquitism is traditionally taken to confuse. Yeah,
1: it's something about not confusing you must not confuse the I'm thinking of the language in the creeds it's like yeah I know what you're talking about
2: Yeah and I mean so this is something that like you know basically all of your traditional uh uh catholic and orthodox communities understand like the the, the no mixing and no blending no confusion even is something that like coptic uh monophysite, uh theologians think, um, reformed theologians aren't going to accept that, uh, traditional Anglicans, uh, and Episcopalians, lots of, uh, um, uh, lots of Lutherans think that this is in fact, uh, theologically problematic. So it's only a very small fraction of Lutherans that get to use this. So on the lighter end, we violate something called theological neutrality uh it's not a view that you can use across the board um on the strong end of it it just turns out that this is something that is theologically heterodox and we should reject
1: okay it. so my hope is with the remaining time you can we lay out your view and uh then go to q a So if if possible, we'll try to spend 10 to 15 minutes laying out this final view, which is what you defend, and then we'll go to Q&A. All right. So this last one, non-local corporealism, denies the third claim. Let me take down this question. Uh, And that third claim is necessarily anything with a physical body has a spatial location. So your proposed solution to this. Uh, problem is to deny that um yeah yeah, so explain how you can get away with that
2: (laughs) yeah so uh to be a non-local corporealist you have to accept that uh it's metaphysically possible for something to be material and or physical and lack a spatial location right um And so what my view is, uh, for when, when we want to answer that really basic question, uh, where did Christ's body go? If you want to answer it literally, you can quite literally say nowhere. Um, if, if we understand the where as a spatial where, right, it's in heaven, but where is it? Well, heaven isn't anywhere. Right. Um, and so I have a a few different arguments. Um, that i think allow us to get this claim off of the ground uh i don't know if you want to switch to the next slide yep yeah yeah so the the big idea is um so i need to have some sort of way of spelling out how this could be a genuine possibility that you have something that's both physical and spatial or non-spatial right um and so here's the broad sketch of an argument Uh, This is more like a schema that I'm going to fill in with three different other arguments. Um, But it goes like this. Premise one, it's possible for an object to instantiate fundamental physical properties or just physical properties generally without having a spatial location. If it's possible for an object to instantiate fundamental physical properties without having a spatial location, then it's possible for an object to be material while failing to be located. Therefore it's possible for an object to be material while failing to be located, right? Um so just a you know that scheme is just like a nice quick easy modus ponens um everybody accepts that inference form. Uh so the question is how we're going to fill it in.
1: Uh Specifically said, premise 1.
2: Premise 1 is the one that I think needs defending. Uh I can say some stuff about premise 2 in the Q&A um but for the most part i think it's intuitive enough that if an object has physical properties then it is in fact uh a physical object or a material object or whatever so how do we defend premise one well there's three different types of arguments and they come from three different uh uh approaches um that are all like motivated um apart from any, like, theoretical, sorry, theological considerations, right? Uh, so the, the first makes use of uh, um, a type of, like, Humean understanding of modality where you have no necessary connections between uh, distinct existences. Um, roughly, the idea works like this. Whenever you have... Um, something with a set of intrinsic properties, you can recombine that uh, in um, across any sort of uh, possible structure uh, that is compatible with you like dropping it the stuff, you know, in that structure in that way. So like, I can't like recombine something that's intrinsically a triangle and drop it in a square region of space, right? Um, so, uh, the argument for modal plenitude goes this way. Uh, I need to generalize out from space and spatiotemporal structure enough uh, so that I get a type of structure that isn't spatial. Um, it might have some sort of bare topological features, it might not even have that. Uh, but this is some sort of world structure that you can go and put objects with intrinsic properties in, right? Um, now, To get premise one, all I need to do is show that I can drag and drop objects that have uh, fundamental physical properties, right? Well, if you have any point sized objects, any objects that don't have any sort of spatial extent, so like things at the points of space, um, and those have fundamental physical properties, I can drag and drop those into this structure um, that is not. A spatial structure. Now you might think that's not enough. You haven't shown me that you can have composite uh, objects that are material and lack of location. But what all you need to do is take a bunch of these, you know, um, extensionless uh, objects with fundamental physical properties, and drop them all in to that structure, and then compose them. Whatever their composite is going to be is going to be a composite object that has uh, physical properties, and so we should consider it to be a material object. But then you have a material object that doesn't have a spatial location, so that gets us premise one.
1: Okay, so that's the argument from modal plenitude.
2: Correct. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I,
1: I was going to say that. What about the dispositional argument? But
2: yeah, so the dispositional argument works a little bit. It works in a similar way. Um, The dispositional argument takes fundamental physical properties or physical properties generally to be uh, dispositions, and dispositions. Um, so, an example like would be like this: glass is fragile is the disposition to be fragile. That means it breaks easily. Um, its fragility can either be manifest or not manifest. Right. So, this is going to sound familiar with the manifestationalism stuff. Uh, the fragility of the glass. Um, is manifest when it's in the kind of conditions where it's going to break. Fundamental physical properties, if we understand them to be dispositions, um, are going to have various manifestation conditions versus uh, not, you know, conditions where they don't manifest in the ways that we're familiar with. Uh, They might manifest in some sort of other way. Now, um, what people will do is individuate dispositions by these uh, um, clusters of manifestation conditions. What uh, all you need to do to show that something that is non-spatial could have physical properties is just say, okay, look, they have these dispositional properties. There's nothing about them that essentially blocks some sort of non you know spatial object from having, fundamental physical dispositions. It's just that they wouldn't be in the right uh, manifestation conditions to manifest as we're familiar with in the physical world. Um, So it moves from like what's essential to these properties to what's possible for these properties. It's essential to these properties that they manifest in certain ways under certain conditions. It is not essential to these properties that they are uh, instantiated by an object located in space-time. So then you get uh, the possibility of there being objects with fundamental physical properties, namely these dispositional ones, um, without being located in space. And so that's the second argument.
1: Yeah. Okay. And people can ask more in the QA if they'd like. For the sake of time, let's go ahead and move to that third argument. So the emergent space time argument.
2: Yeah. So the emergent space time argument um, is motivated by various uh, understandings of um various theories that are popping up in quantum gravity where uh it turns out that it looks like at rock bottom either uh space-time evaporates right you know there's nothing you get down to a certain level and then there's some fundamental stuff below that fundamental physical stuff and that stuff is not spatial and so you'd have to have some sort of uh non-spatial features of the world that uh have physical properties um and yeah yeah and then space arises from those so you might think that like look these space emergence out of this non-spatial uh structure but it has to do that would be one sort of thing that you might think and that's why Whatever would be down here would count as physical or material or whatever, but it turns out that there's going to be models of these theories where space time doesn't evolve at all, or sorry, doesn't emerge from the fundamental structures at all. And you can still have the properties, you know, all the same sort of properties at the bottom. Um, Namely, like, if you don't have enough nodes in your causal network or something like that, you're not going to get a spatial structure. And so the idea is that, like, in these models, you'd have physical objects that lack spatial locations entirely. And that's enough to get one off the ground. Um, And the reason for that is because if you think that um, something is a possibility for how our world could actually be, uh, then... Uh, we should just accept that as a possibility.
1: Okay. So those were three arguments for the first premise. Uh, And the first premise was just, it's possible to have physical properties without having a spatial location. That's the idea. And as long as um, you have that, then it seems like you can deny, let's go back here. You can deny three. Um, You can say, Well, it would be possible then that Jesus have a physical body, but not have a spatial location. And once you deny three, now you're out of the problem of the ascension. That's one solution. And that's the solution that you find most plausible.
2: Yeah. I don't think it's, uh, it clearly faces the theological uh, heterodox worries that the other solutions do. Um, That
1: would be funny if in one of the creeds, it was like, if, something it has physical properties it must be located in (laughs) (laughs) space-time
2: yeah i mean i don't know if uh yeah but yeah i uh there's a sense in which you can find something similar popping up in like john of damascus and then there's a um a text in aquinas where he says something very similar to what i'm saying there so i take that you know if aquinas says it you're in good hands basically (laughs) uh But uh, yeah.
1: okay. so if you all have a question, go ahead and put it in the live chat. uh, Because we're going to wrap up really soon. But my last question for you, Cruz, before we go go to the Q&A, is this. We've had an hour long discussion. I like making these 60 second videos that are kind of like a teaser for the interview. So if possible, can you summarize the problem of the Ascension and your solution to it in just 60 seconds.
2: Okay. Let me give this a try. Yeah. So, um, Christ descended to heaven bodily. Where did his body go? Where is it? Um, if you think that his body went somewhere then it seems like heaven's a location. Um, but that seems to run us into some issues. Um, if you think he gave up his body, Uh, then you could think that heaven isn't some sort of physical location. But then we have to accept that there's uh, a bodiless Christ, which looks like a dead Christ. Um, The solution that I like is that, uh, as surprising as it may be, Christ, his body, can be non-located, and so can be in heaven without having a spatial location. How's that?
1: That was good. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> All right. Um, we've got one question here from Jamie Russell. How much sense, if any, does it have to make the, uh, does it have to make to the original audience? Oh, okay. So they're basically, this person's basically like your solution. Um, would that be something that the original People that are you know are watching Jesus go up in heaven—is that what they would think? If yeah. it, does it have to? Do they have to have your solution?
2: Um, I'm not sure how well I can answer this without potentially butchering a bunch of ancient cosmology. But uh, from what I understand, is like uh, the cosmos is located within some sort of dome, right? Uh, And the thought is that Christ's body went on beyond that dome, right? And so it's very similar. It's not like there's any matter or material space within there. Um, Aristotelians at the time understood uh, location as place, right? And to have a place is to have something surrounding your outsides, right? Right? Um, and I think it would be very natural for them to want to say that Christ's body doesn't have a place.
1: Okay. Um. Yeah, I'll, that's, a, that's an interesting response. So we'll, there are more questions. So I'm going to go ahead and go to those, but that's, more could be said there. Okay, Justin Mooney asked, how about responding to the Pelagian worry by saying that being in a certain location is necessary, but not sufficient for being in heaven. Okay. Um,
2: yeah, he always asks this question. Uh, so what I'm, what I say I'm up to in the paper is trying to spell out some way in which, um, the locationist view, especially the contemporaneous locationism, seems profane in a particular way. Uh, this is this is why Haldane accepts a uh, anti corporealist view about the assumption of Mary. Um, he thinks that there's some sort of way in which saying that like Mary's body traveled out to hyperspace uh, seems profane, right? And in particular, it seems. Like it should not be within our limits, even within sci-fi scenarios, to be able to wander off and run into heaven. Whether or not that counts as meriting salvation, it doesn't seem like we should. That should be a possibility for us. Uh-huh.
1: Okay, and the question somewhat related to that response, Keto asks: Does the hyperspace solution face the technology objection? In principle, we could travel through the extra spatial dimension. Seems like any locational solution faces this objection.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, I think that any any if you're going to locate heaven at some place that we could in principle reach through some sort of advancement, whether it be like a sci-fi technology advancement or not, um, I think you're going to run into that problem.
1: Okay. Hayden Stephen asked, can you put up the three claims of the argument again? Sure. So here they are bodily ascension. Let me take your question down so you can see bodily ascension. That's the first claim that says Christ has a physical body and it's entirely in heaven. Second claim is heaven is not a spatial location. Third claim is necessarily anything with a physical body has a spatial location. By 1 and 2, so the the way that you get a contradiction is by 1 and 2, Christ has a spatial location, but by 1 and 3, Christ does not have a spatial location. Hopefully that answers your question there, Hayden. Okay, Uh, let me go back to this screen. Could the hyperspace theory address Trinitarian puzzles, like the persons of God exist in three dimensions, but are unitarian in nature
2: i don't i don't think so i don't see how that would work um i think that that would require uh thinking about divinity in too spatialized of a way
1: all right that looks like the final question so thank you so much cruz for coming on this was a fun conversation yeah
2: thanks for having me uh, glad to talk about it
0: That's all for this week. If you found this episode valuable, you can leave a review in your podcast app or consider supporting the show on Patreon. The link to the Patreon page can be found in the podcast notes. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.